0: a time to worship. I told the 9 a.m., or as I call it, the practice service, I don't know what it is about. I don't know I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just being inside and the reverberation. I don't know. You guys are just awesome. Thank you. Thank you for serving us this morning. Guys, we're going to be continuing on our series in Esther. So whether you're here with us or whether you're watching online, go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Esther Chapter Three. We're going to be continuing on that little bit, uh, or that that story we've been working our way through. Um, And before we read this, I just I just want to give us a little a little bit of uh, maybe some uh, mental kind of runway for where we're going today. And it just kind of centers around this. And maybe this is just me. So this is just me being confessional. And you're not there. That's fine. But I just I just feel like. Discouragement is a theme that I'm hearing more and more from folk in the last couple weeks. I think just the the reality of of what our nation, our culture is walking through and just everything going on and the way it's mixing together. It seems like I'm having a lot of conversations about just, just being a certain level of discouraged or exhausted or wiped out or or however you want to say that emotionally and spiritually. And I think God has something really specific for that for us today. And so if that's where you're at today, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're joining us. If you're not, you know, I'm, I'm sure God still has something for you. You don't get to just jet because I didn't uh, grab a hold of where your heart's at immediately. Uh, but anyway, we're, we're starting in Esther. Uh, in chapter 3, in the first verse, we read this. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him. And Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, to the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring in his hand and gave it to Haman the Agriite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors, and over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring, and letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews." Young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. In this Beloved is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, this morning as we take a few minutes to dig into your word, to discuss a story that is um, at best sorrowful, God, we ask that you would be our teacher today, that you would be our interpreter, that you would be our or Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just make yourself really known, that you would illuminate this text and illuminate our own hearts. May we see the ways that we ignore your gospel, the ways that we cop out of the truth that you have for us, even the hard truths, God. We ask that you would convict us, you would encourage us as we need, and that we would leave this place today having spent our morning with you. We love you, Jesus, so we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, what to do with this text today? This story presents us with the main conflict of the story of Esther. Um, the, the text is is the, this is the inherently sad and hard part of the story, right? Like, things are going really bad and they've gotten really scary. So, so, so here's what we're gonna do with this. We're gonna, we're gonna walk back to the story, pick through just a couple of textual cultural notes that like we always do to try and kind of get ourselves in the head space of the original audience. I think that's gonna, illuminate something just, I think, just interesting that God has for us. And that'll wrap us around uh, to Paul's teaching to the church in Philippi, and we'll end our time with prayer and communion. So, like I said, this is the main conflict of the story, which means pretty much everything up to this point has in some way been introductory. It's been setting the stage for the main plot, the main conflict of the story, which is this. God's people are facing imminent destruction. Extermination, genocide. We, we, we've talked already about how the, the whole of this book is about God's providence, right? God's care for his people, his sovereignty. Keep that theme in mind as we walk through this part of the story. And then really, quick, just to kind of catch us up, to remember where we've been. I know a lot of you guys are familiar with the story. But just, just to make sure we're on the same page. The story of Esther thus far is this. We are talking about post-exile Israel. So the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, have been destroyed. They are conquered, dispersed people, currently living under the regime of the Persian Empire. And, And God has worked through this pagan empire to allow some of his people to return and begin building, rebuilding Judah, and rebuilding Jerusalem, and rebuilding the temple. You can read about these events in the book of Ezra But our story follows a specific Jewish family living in the capital city of Persia, During this time, they didn't return to Jerusalem. They're still living in the Persian Empire. And we learn about this King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes who essentially divorced his wife and decided to pick a new queen from amongst the common folk by just picking the woman that was the most pleasing to him. And he ends up marrying this young Jewish orphan named Esther who has been adopted and raised by her cousin Mordecai. And she has now been elevated to the position of queen of the entire Persian Empire. She's still staying relationally connected and spiritually loyal to her father Mordecai, who's working a low-level political position in the court system in Persia. And we learned last week that because of that position, Mordecai became aware of an assassination plot against the king and did the right thing. Turned in the baddies and saved the king's life and yet got no recognition for it, no reward for it. He's still just working his job, doing his thing. And all of that works to kind of set up this scene. So in the opening words of chapter 3, we're finally introduced to the main villain of Esther. This man, Haman, the the enemy of the Jews, as is his title in this book, is promoted to essentially the highest position in the land. Now, this presented this kind of sick, contrast to Mordecai, right? Like, Mordecai does what's right and honors the king and serves him and saves his life and gets no reward. But then this guy, who had no involvement in outing the plot against the king, is brought up to be the king's right hand. And he's elevated and given authority and fame and all of these things. And at first, we, had, we just have no idea why. He just He just kind of comes out of nowhere and sweeps up into this politically important position. But verse 2 gives us this incredibly strange detail about Haman. See, the king orders everyone to bow down and pay homage to Haman. This is extremely strange because in that culture, everyone would automatically bow down and pay homage to the king's prime minister. This implies that the political leaders in Susa either weren't automatically, or that they weren't automatically bowing to Haman, which means he was either so new to the scene that they didn't know him or recognize him, which is really unlikely, or his reputation was such that they just didn't want to, and the king had to make it a law that they honor this guy. So for whatever reason, the people have to be ordered to bow down to Haman, and for whatever reason, Mordecai does not. Now this is where it gets even more interesting. We're going to kind of go down the rabbit hole a little bit this morning, so just kind of stick with me with this, because it'll wrap back around. But Christian Jewish theologians have discussed and debated the purpose of Mordecai's refusal for hundreds of years. Unsurprisingly, Esther has no interest in telling you why he wouldn't bow. It just tells you that he wouldn't. And people for a long time have tried to figure out a righteous reason why Mordecai would refuse to bow. But here's the problem. There really isn't one. See, nothing in Jewish law or tradition prevented observant Jews from bowing down to their authority figures. It was normative. it was the way of showing the respect and honor due the position. You might in your mind be like, well, what about Daniel? What about the statue? See, that was different. They would refuse to bow down to an image or an idol all the time, but Jewish men, even very observant Jewish men, had no problem bowing and showing reverence to an authority figure, a person. But Mordecai won't. So why won't he? I mean, this is a really interesting question, in part because we're kind of motivated. Like, we, we don't want Mordecai to sin, right? Like, he's one of the heroes of the story, and so we kind of want him to be this, like, perfect, righteous example. Last week, right, we were talking about how he, he gives us shadows of Jesus and Jesus's ministry. Like, we want this guy to just kind of be this perfect, like, Jesus light, but he isn't. And he's just a God, and he makes some righteous decisions and some selfish decisions. And it's really hard to try and justify or fit a righteous explanation into Mordecai's refusal to bow. It's so wild that the, the ancient Jewish interpreters of this text had said, well, Haman must have, he must have taken like some really small idols and like woven them into his cloak as like a decoration. Because, I mean, there, there can't be any other explanation for why Mordecai wouldn't do this. They, they, they come up with some weird stuff. But the most likely explanation also makes this text even stranger to us. So take, take another step down the rabbit hole with me. See, the author of Esther makes a connection between Mordecai and Haman that's really subtle and we will really easily miss as modern readers, in part because of just some of the, some of the presumptions that we bring to reading scripture. So, so walk through this with me. Remember at the beginning of chapter two when we're introduced to Mordecai the first time, we get this little abbreviated genealogy that identifies him as a Benjamin. Now, in ancient Jewish genealogies, writers were generally way more concerned with the notable names in the genealogies than they were with the accuracy of the genealogy. So if you had a 25 generation genealogy, they might condense it down to like the most famous five in that 25 just to make it a little more palatable, right? So, So when we get these Four generations connected to Mordecai, we have no clue if the author's actually referring to the previous four generations. It's actually much more likely that he's just naming some of the highlights of people that Mordecai is related to working its way back. And what that does is it connects us between Mordecai and the lineage of King Saul. If you look at the names were given in Mordecai's lineage, those are all key names in the line of King Saul. Now, there's some meta-theology here that we're not going to go into today about the line of Saul choosing to remain in Susa and the line of David returning to Jerusalem, but that's like a whole different deal, and if you're interested in that, we can talk about it offline. But, but the point is... The author of Esther wants to kind of make these subtle connections between the person of Mordecai and the person of King Saul. Now, turn to Haman. We're told that Haman is an Agagite. Agagite. That literally means of Agag. Agag was the last of the Amalekite kings when Israel, under the leadership of, you guessed it, King Saul finally defeated and destroyed that nation. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 15. The Amalekites are an incredibly important part of Israelite history. They are the original and the archetypal enemy of Israel. If you go all the way back to Exodus 17, when Israel is a fledgling nation, just a group of escaped slaves making their way out of Egypt, the very first people that just decide they hate them and want to kill them is the Amalekites. They try and to wipe out the fledgling nation of Israel during their wanderings in the wilderness. This is that kind of famous story, right? Where they go to battle, and as long as Moses' arms are up, they're winning. And when they get tired and he puts them down, they lose. So they send a group of guys to hold up his arms during the battle because he gets tired, right? This is the Amalekite people. And they essentially become just this archetypal enemy against God's people. Now, I know for a lot of us, if you grew up in church world, you think stereotypical bad guy in the Old Testament, you go straight to Philistines, right? Because you're thinking of like David and Goliath. But the Amalekites are the OG bad guy for the nation of Israel. They're they're They're, pre-Philistines. They've been hating Israel since before it was cool to hate Israel, right? And and what's important to note about the Amalekites is that they weren't amongst the people that God was kicking out of the promised land. They were the neighbors, So God's moving in Israel into the Promised Land, and the Amalekites are just like, we don't like you, we don't like things changing, we don't like any of this, we're going to kill you. And they try and they fail, and they live in just this back and forth, constant warfare throughout Exodus, throughout the time of the Judges, and into the time of the kings. And when God sets up Saul as his first anointed king of Israel, one of the first commands he gives Saul once Once Israel's been unified as a single nation, away from kind of its tribal existence, one of the first things God speaks to him through the prophet Samuel is that I am going to use you, Saul, and my nation Israel as an instrument of my judgment for sin amongst the Amalekites. I'm I'm done with their sin, I'm casting judgment upon it, and they no longer get to be a nation. I'm taking away their nationhood. I'm destroying them. And you are my tools to do this. Now this is really important. I know that like by taking us, we're far enough down the rabbit hole, right? That like now I'm digging into like genocide in the Old Testament. And I know for some of us, like that's a really big one with working through our faith and theodicy and those things. And I would tell you if that's something you're interested in, like grab a hold of me offline because I'd love. To dig through that with you, I think there's actually really beautiful and awesome biblical answers to some of those problems. But that's not in the scope of our sermon today. In the scope of our sermon today, what we need to understand is that King Saul, one of his first missions given by God was to be a tool of God's judgment against a specific people group who were into generation upon generation of pretty grievous sin. And what's important to understand about God's command of Israel against the Amalekites is that this was not a political, military command. It worked itself out that way, but God wasn't saying, hey, guess what, Israel? I'm gonna let you defeat this king so you can get a bunch more cities and have a bigger country. God was saying, guess what, Israel? You're my holy and set-apart people, and here's some sin that I need to judge, and you're gonna be my tool in that judgment. So if you read in 1 Samuel 15 about this story, King Saul is given this sacred mission by God, and he completely and utterly fails. You see, he takes this from a sacred, holy, sin-judgment task and turns it into a political and military task. And he wins the war He conquers the cities. He destroys the Amalekite nation. It ceases to exist as a nation after this war with Israel under their unified king. But here's what he does. He lets tons of people escape and survive. and He takes tons of plunder and wealth and tons of captives. And basically says, check this out, look how powerful our nation is, look what we have done. And Samuel, God speaks through Samuel to the king and says, you have failed my command. This is not what I told you to do. I wasn't giving you a political victory. I was using you as a tool of my judgment and you failed it. And this is actually what sparks the downfall of Saul when God removes his anointing and says, I will replace you with a better king, is bad. Now, this, this whole idea, right, the, the, the Amalekites, some of them, especially like in the descendants of Agag, they, they, they escape and they, and they cease to be a nation, but kind of the assumption here is that they, they continue on in some kind of identifiable culture. And so you have Mordecai connected as a descendant of Saul, and you have Haman connected as a descendant of this king, of this destroyed nation. And and it just just kind of comes together, and and it kind of of makes some sense of the story a little bit. Now, if you're thinking about this maybe a little more with a modern brain, maybe a little more black and white. You might be looking at these connections between Mordecai and Saul and and Haman and Agag and thinking, these connections, like I see them, it feels like a little bit of a stretch. Uh, You're right. It is to acknowledge that for a moment, and that's where we're getting into some of the literary nature of Esther. There's no way you can conclusively prove, by modern historical standards, that Mordecai is literally of the blood and line of Saul, and that Haman is literally of the blood and line of King Agag, and thus the Amalekites. But, But here's the thing. The author of Esther very obviously wants us as the audience to make the connection. See, at the minimum, At the absolute minimum, we're supposed to see Mordecai as a sort of spiritual successor to Saul, and Haman as a sort of spiritual successor to Agag and the Amalekites. Ultimately, for for the purposes of where we're going with this theologically, the literalness of the connection doesn't matter, that the literary connection is going to connect us to the theological point. Having said that, I think taking the text at its word and kind of allowing it to be Uh, kind of some of our understanding of some actual literal history here i think that's well within the work of god's providence and i actually think it makes a ton of sense of the story in a couple ways that otherwise it's just really hard to explain the big one is why the heck wouldn't mordecai bow down to his new boss Why would he directly disobey an order of the king when the standing order for Jewish people from the ministry of the prophets was, seek the good of your city, submit to your leaders, do right. And here's a guy who's trying to keep a low profile and he disobeys a direct order from the king for something that seems like it's not a big deal. Unless Mordecai and Haman are actually aware of this history, and he realizes that this guy is in the line of this ancient feud with his people, who's now been elevated to a place of excessive power. And that that leads us to the other piece, right? Here you have Haman. We don't know anything about this guy. Basically, the first thing we learn about him is that he's willing to commit complete genocide as a gotcha to a coworker who embarrassed him publicly. That's wild. He went from, this guy won't bow down to me, that's embarrassing, to, I want to wipe out every single one of his people in the entire nation. That's insane. That's the kind of escalation that, that easily goes into the realm of psychosis, right? For Haman to go from, this guy embarrassed me publicly, to I'm going to wipe out all of his relatives on the planet using all my political power is wild. Unless you step back and go, well, maybe he's actually aware of some of his history. And maybe he actually knows he's at the line of kings. And that the reason he is in the position he's in is because that guy's descendant wiped out all of his descendants and destroyed the nation and the people he's from. You know what I mean? You don't have to Grab a hold of this literally. It doesn't affect, I think, the overall teaching of the text, but I think it makes sense of the story for us. So, let's actually walk through what Haman does with his plot. First thing he does is he starts throwing dice to pick a day. This is strange for us, but essentially what you need to know is that the Palestine, the, the Persians, believed really deeply in the power of omens. And so he's essentially throwing dice to pick a day because he's trying to find a lucky day. He's got a really big task, it's a really big plan, a lot of moving parts, and so he was really concerned with making sure the omens were in his favor, and he picked a day that made the most sense for things to work out, which is why he ends up with a day essentially 11 and a half months later. So he brings his plan to the king, and he starts schmoozing King Xerxes, and he paints this picture of a people within the empire who who follow their own customs and laws and disregard the laws of the king. And so so stop here for a second, because look at how Haman convinces Xerxes. He actually gives him, right, this this really kind of subtle half-truth that he then leads into a lie. And I think, I think this, is, this is actually important for us, right, is, is look at this. He, he sets the whole thing up by saying, you've got these weird people among you. They don't follow our rules, they don't follow our customs, they do their own thing, they have their own culture and their own laws, and they disregard the laws of the king. Well now, here's the thing. The Jewish people were very weird in the Persian culture. They did have their own culture and their own laws. In fact, of all the people in the Near East who were destroyed or displaced under the reign of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Jews were some of the only people that dug their heels in the ground and said, we will not assimilate. We will hold on to our identity and our culture. Spread out over the whole of this empire across multiple nations and cities, the Jewish people alone amongst the nations surrounding them kept their identity and kept their way of life. So they were weird. They were strange. But Haman takes that a step farther and says, and they disregard the laws of the king. Now, we've already talked about this. The standing order for the Jewish people in exile is seek the good of your city. Seek the good of your oppressor. Honor God by honoring those over you. Plant gardens, build houses, start businesses. Get your roots in and just make the place where God has placed you the best Possible most godly place, the Jews were certainly not disregarding the laws of the king. They were seeking the betterment of their oppressors. In fact, the only record we have in this story of any Jewish person violating the laws of the king is Mordecai choosing to disobey the king's law to bow down to his boss, Haman. Which, we don't have to, like, camp there but it's worth noting, when you're a representative, your actions, they expound past you. Because the poor Jews on the other side of the Persian Empire definitely was not their fault Mordecai didn't bow down. But they're just sitting there at work when that edict shows up a couple days later. <laughs> what is happening? We'll get to that. Haman paints this dishonest picture of the Jewish people and then he baits the hook and says, look, King, look, look, it's not good for you to to be patient with these people. They're super destructive. Tell you what. I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver and I'll take care of them. Just sign it off. I will take care of this problem for you. Now, 10,000 talents of silver is an absolutely ludicrous amount of wealth in this concept. Or in, in, in this context, we're talking about like metric tons of silver. The, the thought that, that Haman had this much cash on hand, it's, it's just insanely unlikely. He's most likely thinking he's going to get a bunch of this cash from wiping out the entire Jewish people and taking all their stuff. But regardless, we're, made, we're, we're led into the fact here that Haman is a man of means. And so he uses money and deception to bait the hook, and here we are, we're we're brought back to the fact that in this story, King Xerxes pretty much constantly plays the fool. And here you have this half-drunk king being schmoozed by his new advisor, and he ends up conceding to a plot that dooms his own wife to death with no concept of the consequences. He hears this, sees the money, and goes, "Sweet, this all sounds awesome. Yeah, dude, here's my ring. You go do what seems good to you, man. I trust you." Which just like there's a little bit of just kind of sick irony in in hearing Xerxes say, eh, "Do whatever seems good to you," as the man is plotting genocide, right? But but he just he just hands off the totality of his royal authority to King Haman and says, "Go for it. Do do what seems good to you, man. I'm." I gotcha. And so they set up this decree. Eleven months from now, we're going to exterminate this entire people every man, every woman, every child. Look how intense the text is. Destroy, kill, annihilate all of them. This is brutal. And they want to make sure no one misses out on this. They copy this announcement in every language of every people, in every culture, in every province, in all of the Persian Empire. And send it out over the whole nation and say, get ready, everyone. On this day, at this time, we're going to kill all of these people and take their stuff. And that's it.
1: Haman and the
0: king sit down to party and drink and celebrate. And the whole city is whipped up in the confusion, going, What the heck is happening right now? And that's just where the text ends. So, what, what do we actually do with this wild ride of a story? Where do we actually go from here right now, right? Like, I, I know we can kind of wrap our heads around the story, but what do we actually learn from this? What, what does this even mean? for the church right here and right now? I think the answer is relatively simple, although it's relatively hard to actually accept. The reality is this. This story is horrible. This is terrible. In in a set of circumstances, completely and totally outside of their control, the entire Jewish people is set up for extermination by an evil man who has the power to wipe them out over an age-old vendetta and some public embarrassment. What an atrocious and evil and unjust thing. All these people are doing is simply existing doing their best to follow God and honor him in the midst of their exile, and all of a sudden, just like poor Esther a chapter back, they're swept up in a larger and evil power totally beyond their control, and they're going to be wiped out just for being God's people and following him. This is awful. But it's also to be expected. You see, if you actually seek to follow God with your life, you are setting yourself up to be in the margins of a larger society. Christian practices and Christian, or even just say godly practices and godly ethics are strange and offensive to this world. They always have been and they always will be. The scripture says that the gospel is like the stench of death to those who have not found life. There's something about, and by the way, this shouldn't surprise us, there's something about God's design for his people and his creation that in the midst of the curse and sin and evil, it's just, it's just incompatible. If you are following Jesus with your whole person... Us right now, you beloved of Jesus, you will take flack. You'll be offensive to your culture. It's just—it's just part of the deal. This this whole world is cursed and broken by sin. If you decide to spend your life following God, seeking His kingdom here and now, you are putting a target on your back. You will stick out like a sore thumb. Whether it's the evil of this world or the evil and sin in your own heart or the evil and broken systems of this world or Satan himself, whatever it is, it will seek to destroy you because it does not want God's will here on earth. If you're following after Christ, if you're following after the way of the kingdom, you will be a target for suffering and destruction simply because of Jesus. And by the way, church, our God allows this. Now that's, that's heavy, but sit with me in this for a moment. Beloved of Jesus, if you follow after your king, your king will allow the evil of this cursed and broken world to hurt you for I know that's hard for us to chew on, but we have to chew on it. We know, right, evil, death, suffering, genocide. These are not God's ultimate will or ultimate desire for his children or his creation. In heaven, those things won't exist. But here on earth, where sin still exists and it still perverts and curses the very ground we walk upon, Those things continue, and our God allows them to continue. In fact, he works through them. He accomplishes his purposes through even the evils of this world. Haman reminds us that God's people have had enemies as long as they have been God's people. Whether it's the Amalekites in the wilderness, Haman in Susa, or terrorists beheading Coptic Christians, there is evil in this world that is seeking to destroy God's people, God's plan, and God's will. And they will use whatever nefarious means necessary. This may be alarming and this may be painful, but it's true. But praise be to God that he uses even evil to bring about his will. I feel like I've said that each week we've been in Esther, but we we have to come back to that truth. He uses even the darkest of times, even the most evil of people, even the most terrible of injustice to bring about his ultimate will. Our God is sovereign and evil cannot defeat him. It's not a matter. Like, God is, God is so strong and so capable. Like, this isn't a matter of whether or not he can just take these things away. It's so much deeper than that. Because he uses even the evil of this world to bring about his good. I guarantee when God's people heard or read that decree, they have no concept and no perspective of the ways that God might be using that to their good. You walk out of work one day and walk into the public square and read the news from the Capitol and one of the announcements is, hey, in nine months, you and all your family are gonna be wiped out and all your stuff will be stolen. Anyway, get back to work. There's no way to engage that and go, man, this is wild. I wonder what God's doing with this one. This is gonna be crazy. No! That's, that's crushing! But we, the audience, know the setup. We know that God is not surprised by him that he's not caught off guard, that he's working even in the pride of a court official who won't bow down the evil of a prime minister bet on selling an old score, that he works even in the drunk and unaware king who issues foolish and evil decrees. He works to bring about his will and bring about his kingdom. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul, it's amazing, this little setup. See, Paul is in prison, and in Roman prisons in this day, uh, you didn't eat or get clothes unless someone paid for them for you. And so a group of churches make sure that Paul is taken care of while he's in prison. And he writes this thank you letter to one of those churches, thanking them essentially for their support and giving them some encouragement. And I want to read this whole chunk to you from Philippians chapter four. Let me, let me read this to you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. I have received the full payment, and more, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? One of the most famous verses in the New Testament, the easily the most famous verse in Philippians, is right in the middle of this section thanking a church for their financial gift. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can you think of like a more quintessential, like every well, how many Christian athletes have that verse like written on their body or their bottle or their sweatshirt or their training or whatever, tattooed on them, right? Like this is one of those quintessential verses that, that, that gets kind of absorbed into Christian culture. And, and by the way, right, like I think that passage is actually great encouragement in hard endeavors like athletics. But but look at the original and larger context of this phrase. Paul is, is talking to a financial donor, and he's talking about his experiences of comfort and injustice. He's talking about having times when things are easy and times when he's literally starving. I mean, think about Paul's life. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked and left in the open sea, he was imprisoned, he was hated, he lost his social standing. The list goes on and on and on, and he received all of these things simply for choosing to follow Jesus in a world that does not follow Jesus. I mean, sometimes he experienced blessing and comfort. He had to spend the night in homes of friends and church members and eat warm home-cooked meals and encourage and pray for each other, but just as often he experienced insane amounts of injustice and hardship. Things went badly for Paul. One of my favorite stories of Paul's from his first missionary journey where he goes to a town and preaches and they get so offended, they drag him outside and stone him to death. And he's laying there on the ground, and the group of people who just heard him preach and met Jesus come out and pray over him. And he sits back up after having just been stoned, thrown outside, thrown in a pit, and had boulders thrown on him to kill him. He sits up after this group of people prays over him, and he's like, that's wild. And he goes back into the town and starts preaching again. Just walks, can you imagine being that group of people that just stoned a dude to death? And like 30 minutes later, he walks back and he's like, I wasn't done with my sermon. Sit back down. <laughs> this is the ministry of Paul. The dude had evil lurking all around him. Guys, this was a normal part of the deal for Paul. Just like it was a normal part of the deal for the Jews in the day of Esther. And beloved Jesus, hear this. Hear this. This is a normative part of the Christian experience for you and I today. If you follow Jesus fully and with abandon, you will experience hardship. Satan and the sin of this world will not die without a fight. If you speak up for the kingdom of God here and now, expect to get hit. I mean, look at the saints who came before us. The author of Hebrews lists all the hardships and injustices and suffering of the saints who paved the way for the church. And he concludes the passage by saying, the world was not worthy of them. Beloved, we get shielded from this reality in our context. We have have so much religious freedom that we that we end up believing that we're actually entitled to that level of freedom and comfort. I mean this is right, this is the promise of our land. It's the promise of our nation, the 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 land of the free, the, the home of the brave. The problem is that your primary citizenship, according to the word, is in the kingdom of God. And to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to stand for the things of Jesus, is to invite hardship. If you follow after Christ, you will get flack. The liberals will call you a cold-hearted conservative. The conservatives will call you a dangerous liberal. I could go down the line The things, the people, the belief, the systems of this world will be unsatisfied with you if you are given fully to Christ. You will get flack from both sides of life. I don't have to go down the line, though, because the reality is we know this is true. In our heart of hearts. We know that that even, even even in our country, in our culture, with all this religious freedom, that if you stand for the things of Jesus, you will stand out. And you will experience hardship. And guys, we have to be honest. It's so easy in our time in our place to let that scare us away from seeking the kingdom. It's so easy in our context to look at the smallest amount of suffering and see that as evidence that we're doing something wrong and we should just back off. Well, God's not blessing it. I'm experiencing hardship. He must just be closing a door. I must be doing something wrong. I should just back off. I don't want to be divisive anyway. I don't want to close doors with those relationships. Beloved of Jesus, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't. Don't back off of the work of the kingdom because you experience hardship. Rejoice in your suffering. They're light and momentary. And God is working in our suffering. God is working even in evil, even in hardship. God will not waste it. <sighs> I said at the beginning that I've been hearing a lot of people talk about being just discouraged and beaten down this time. And you know, whatever. We have we have brothers and sisters around the world in places where their faith is illegal and they have friends who are kidnapped and killed and, and if we start playing the comparison game the longest city here and think we're the worst Christians on earth and that's that's not the point. The point is that we have a call, we have we have work to do here, even even in a place with so much so much freedom. But it's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to face the hardships we face and just go, I just need to back off. This is causing too many problems. This is breaking relationships. I just feel spent. It feels like it's not working. God's not blessing it. Like, he must just have something else for me right now. it, fear not. Be not discouraged. Be not pushed away from the calling that God has in your life. God is working, even in your discouragement, even in your exhaustion, even in your hurt, even in the evil of your life. God will not waste these things. And beloved, hear this. Hear this. You have Jesus. He is in you. He strengthens you. And Jesus, he can do all things. Right? Like, we we know that and we affirm that, right? Like, Jesus can do all things. He's not defeated by discouragement or suffering or pain or evil. He can do all things, and you have Jesus. So you can do all things. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I can experience blessing, and I can endure hardship. I can walk boldly in my calling and I can celebrate victories and I can experience injustice and hurt and discouragement. I can do all of those things because we have Jesus. So beloved, let's leave this place and go forward in that bravery and that passion of our sweet, sweet Jesus. Let us stand up the kingdom, and let us find the secret of being content no matter the circumstances. Let us endure the evils of this world, because when it comes down to it, we have Jesus. Evil can't beat him, and he's with us. Jesus, thank you so much for this space. Thank you for the love you have for us, the work you've done on our behalf and our hearts, God, you are so kind. You are so good to us. Jesus, right now, for the people in this room, as we sit and process and just think about this text and think about what you've been speaking in this time, I ask God that you would give fresh strength to empty hearts today. That the people in our fellowship, in our family, in our church in this room, on our live stream, in our, in our community, God, the people who are beat down, that feel sped, that are, that are ready to just roll over and let Satan keep kicking them. God, we ask that you would be just a battery in our hearts. That you would charge us up with your strength and your endurance and your righteousness and your long-suffering and your patience. all things through your strength. Make that true in us. And God, use your people here to, to bring about your kingdom here in West County, here in Sydney. Don't pass us by. Now, even, even little Red Tree Church, God, use us for your kingdom right here and right now. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things.